This is Ideas from Aspen from American Public Media. I'm Kai Rizdahl. We're featuring highlights from the Aspen Ideas Festival, today moving toward Mideast peace. In his first six months in office, President Obama has endorsed a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He's asked Palestinians to recognize Israel's right to exist, and he has called on Israel to freeze Jewish settlements on the West Bank. He's also made efforts to rebuild America's relationship with Syria. This hour, we'll hear two different perspectives from the Middle East. Israeli Ambassador Michael Oren and Syrian Ambassador Imad Mustafa both appeared at this summer's Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Each talked about the view of the world from where they sit and the future for peace in their region. Coming up, we'll hear from Syrian Ambassador Imad Mustafa, but first, Michael Oren. An American-Israeli scholar, historian, and author of the best-selling book Six Days of War, June 1967, and the Making of the Modern Middle East, Michael Oren was appointed as Israel's ambassador to the United States in May. It's an easy fit since he was born and raised in the U.S. His appearance at the Aspen Ideas Festival was his first public appearance as Israel's ambassador. He sat down for a conversation with his longtime friend Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic Magazine. And Goldberg asked Oren to begin by telling the story of his decision to become an Israeli. I came from a very normal American Jewish family, conservative uh, synagogue go to, they sent me to Hebrew school, I got kicked out of Hebrew school. I read my, my bar mitzvah uh, on the care and treatment of lepers on, uh, in transliteration. In translation, I couldn't even read the Hebrew in my own bar mitzvah, um, so much for the American, you know, conservative movement Hebrew system, which is very problematic. Um, and... Went to a regular, didn't go to a Jewish, we didn't have Jewish day schools then. I grew up in an almost entirely Sicilian neighborhood. I was the only Jewish kid in my neighborhood. So there was no big Zionist influence on my life. My parents were sort of mildly Zionist in the way that our neighbors were mildly Catholic. And if one of their kids came home and said, Mom, Dad, uh, I'm going off to join a monastery, they'd, go, they'd probably go Eve or if it's equivalent in Sicilian Italian. Um, but one day I came home quite early uh, when I was eight, nine years old and said, Mom and Dad, I want to live in the state of Israel. No. Uh, and they said, Oy vey. Um I don't have an explanation for this. Uh, it, just, it was something I knew from the earliest age that the state of Israel was the most exciting, challenging event in the last 2,000 years of Jewish history. And I was going to be damned if I was going to stay in northern New Jersey and, and watch this from the sidelines and not be involved in it. And so at the first opportunity, um, 15 years old, I more or less lied about my age and got into a group of 17-year-olds going to, to work on a kibbutz. And I went to work on a kibbutz. That was the Hashemer Tzair, radical Marxist kibbutz I was on. Uh, and worked in the alfalfa and worked in the cotton and worked in the uh, cow sheds. And was, it, was, it was the Garden of Eden. I loved it. I loved it. And I would come home every year and mow lawns and shovel snow and clean windows to save up enough money to go back to Israel every year and work for free. <laughs> How bizarre was that? And it was just such a privilege to be part of it. Israel was quite pleased with that arrangement, I'm sure. <laughs> I was a lousy alfalfa worker. <laughs> but, um, and and I, just, I knew eventually that I was going to live there and I would serve in the armed forces. What alienated uh, you so much from the American Jewish experience or the American experience that made you want to Recreate, re- give a rebirth to yourself as an Israeli Jew. Um, Besides growing up in a Sicilian neighborhood and having to run for my life home every day. Um, by the way, the, the, the town I grew up in is the town that they filmed The Sopranos in. My enti- all of my neighbors were named Tony. And they talk like that. <laughs> and at a certain age, you know, the, the kind of tubby Jewish kid next door was a very good target, good practice for what would come later in life. Um, it was not, I wasn't disaffected in any way. I loved America. I played, you know, Little League Baseball. I had the ultimate uh, American experience. My wife is from San Francisco, um, and she grew up, we both grew up in the same era, more or less. Uh, she grew up in the San Francisco of the 60s. She hung out the Fillmore West. She went to the Happening. She went to the, you know, the Love Fest in San Francisco Park. In northern New Jersey, I grew up in the 50s, because we grew up basically in happy days with the, the, the basketball games and the soda shops and the pep rallies, and I went to two proms, something my wife would not have been caught dead in, two proms. And um, I had the classical American upbringing. It was just this notion that I had to participate in what I thought and still think 
was the most exciting, challenging, fulfilling, fulfilling experience to occur in the, the Jewish people in the last two millennia. Do you think that, let me go to what to me is the hardest question, well, one of the hard questions, and there are numerous hard questions. Uh, Ambassador Oren uh, has written about the existential challenges to Israel extensively, and he's made a, a laundry list of those existential challenges. We'll get to that in a second. But here's the, th- the, the thing that I sometimes can't get my mind around. To me, to, to my worldview, and I admit I'm prejudiced because I've chosen to live my life as an American, it seems to me that it's safer to live as a Jew in America than it is to live as a Jew in Israel. Now, the Zionist dream, there were, there were various highfalutin reasons for doing this, but yeah. the basic urge, the basic Zionist urge was to create a place where Jews can live in physical safety. That was one of the basic urges of the Zionist movement. And yet today we see, and I don't think you can deny this, that it is dangerous to be Jewish in the state of Israel, and it is not dangerous to be Jewish in the United States of America. How do you square that? And do you think that Israel has failed in that particular mission to date? I think Israel hasn't achieved that goal entirely yet, but let's put it this way. It was one of the goals of Zionism. One of the goals of Zionism was to secure a place where Jews could live out their lives free of threat. But I think the overarching goal of Zionism was to create an environment where Jews could take responsibility for themselves as Jews. And it's the only place in the world where you do take responsibility for yourself as a Jew. You take responsibility for your lampposts and your, your sewage systems and your education systems and your wars and your successes and your failures. We take responsibility for them as Jews. And I think that is the great accomplishment of the Zionist dream was to transform the Jews from passive actors in their history to active agents in their history, to transform Jews from the role of victims, uh, which is a very fundamental transformation from ourselves, to people who take responsibility for all of their action. Look at how many commissions we have after all of our wars to examine how well we did in our war and how we failed in those wars if we failed. Um, And I'll throw out just by way of conclusion a little statistic. Israel has the second highest longevity rate in the world after Japan. Guess which is way down on the list? The United States. Israeli Jews live longer (laughs) than American Jews. (laughs) Come to Israel and live long. (laughs) That is the most uh, urgent tourist pitch I've ever heard. And it really speaks to the Jewish uh, you may have desire. A, you may have a Kassam rocket in your background yeah, every yeah, once in a while, yeah. but you'll be watching them for a long the rockets, time. The right. homeless will keep you alive forever. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> but go, go to this very basic question that, that, uh, that undergirds a lot of who you are. Yes. Why is it so important for Jews, to you, for mm-hmm. Jews, to continue as a people and as a nation? What is, the, what is that, that urge in you? If what I, is the urge for Jewish no. continuity? You talk about Israel as, yeah. as the ark of Jewish continuity. That in America, uh, th- those who aren't alienated from Hebrew school at the outset, many of them drift away from Judaism. America's Jewish population never grows. It always stays constant because so many people leave Judaism. Israel is a Jewish baby machine by comparison. Um, but why is that important to you? That is almost the most intimate question you could ask me. Almost goes, the most it, intimate almost question. Intimate yeah. question. It goes to the heart of my faith and my, my conflicts with faith. I, I am religiously challenged. I spent m- most of my life going through various religious brands of Judaism. I was raised a conservative Jew. At one point, I became a Reformed Jew. Now I'm sort of closer to modern orthodoxy in my beliefs, always grappling with the question, what is this Jewish experience about? What is the relationship between the God of Israel and the people of Israel? I have friends, very religious friends, very intelligent people in, in Israel who tell me that the God of Israel cares about the Jewish people. The God of Israel will never abandon the Jewish people. And my response to them is, well, if he cares, sometimes, sometimes he's got a rather strange way of showing it. Uh, We have a Holocaust in our not-so-distant future that we don't have an answer for uh, theologically. We really don't, at least not a compelling one to my mind. And yet, and yet, if I did not think that there was some purpose to Jewish history, that there's a reason why an obscure nomadic tribe 5,000, 4,000 years ago came up with this extraordinary notion of a one God and of a, of a moral universe 
the greatest contribution of the Jewish people to humanity is that there's a thing called good and evil out there and, and changed human history irrevocably. And that this people, which has undergone just consecutive expulsions and oppressions and inquisitions, has suffered the greatest single mass massacre in human history, is still around and still thriving and has come back to be reenfranchised in a sovereign state that has not enjoyed a nanosecond of peace in its 61 years of existence and which remains a powerhouse by any criteria, to me there's got to be a reason for that. And there's got to be a reason for the Jewish contributions to science and to literature and to society and to politics. There's some reason to it. What that reason is, I don't know. I still inhabit a universe of doubt, but if I didn't have that sense, I would not have moved from... West Orange, I would not have raised my family in this country. I now have had two kids in the army. Both of them are war veterans. As, as you know, one of them was wounded quite severely uh, in a battle with Hamas. My sister-in-law was killed in a bus bombing in 1995. I have another son, my youngest kid, my little boy, going into a commando unit this summer. We wouldn't be going through all of this unless we believed and to not understand that belief is not to understand the resilience and the ingenuity of this state. Let's, let's talk about um, something that uh, the philosopher Avishai Margalit called the immaculate misconception of Zionism. Right. I just, I'm just trying to All right. give you a little jab here. My neighbor. Uh, your neighbor. <laughs> Everyone's uh, our neighbor. And, yeah. and let's talk about, uh, Avishai Margalit refers to the immaculate misconception as follows. He says, he says the immaculate misconception of, of Zionism is that there was no one in the ancient land of Israel, in Palestine, when the Jews decided to go back. That's the misconception, that there was no, there nobody current, nobody living there at the time. And that he sees, and many people see, as the essential tragedy of the Middle East, which is that you have two peoples um, with compelling claims to the same piece of land. Now, talk about, talk about that in, in existential terms, if you will, because I, I, I want to... I want to understand if you actually believe that there is a solution to that original misconception. I also want to hear if, if you actually agree that it was a misconception of early Zionists, that there were no Arabs there, or that the Arabs would acquiesce to the return of large numbers of Jewish people. Well, it was certainly a misconception of some early Zionists, including some non-Jewish early Zionists. The, the, the aphorism, a land for people for a people without a land, was actually coined by a British lord in 1848, a non-Jew. And early, early Jewish Zionists in the latter half of the 19th century believed that Palestine uh, was largely uninhabited. And if you, read travel, uh, if you read travel literature of the period, for example, Mark Twain's uh, piece from 1867, Brinson's Abroad, everybody remarks, all of these writers remarked how underpopulated Palestine was. And it was. Um, at the turn of the 20th century, there were roughly 800, 900,000 people in all of Palestine. And that is less than the population of Washington, D.C., it was woefully underpopulated for all sorts of reasons, uh, not the least of them were ecological. Um, but nevertheless, there was another people there, a people which at the time of its, in Zionism's formative stage didn't necessarily think of itself as a people. You don't find the term Palestinian Arab in any of the literature well into the 1950s, never mind the term the 90s. There's a reason why the partition resolution of 1947 calls for creating a Jewish state and an Arab state, not a Palestinian state. The term Palestinian before 1948, referred almost exclusively to Jews. The, the Palestine exhibit at the 1939 World's Fair in New York was the Zionist exhibit, not an Arab exhibit. Um, you could have gotten great Palestinian fare there, schnitzel. You got, that was it. <laughs> A genuine Palestinian meal you could have had there, schnitzel. Um, falafel then was unknown. Um, having said all that, having said all that, at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. The tragedy, not of the Middle East, but certainly the tragedy of Israel and its relationship with the Palestinians is that there is another people who calls itself the Palestinian people, and we can't define for the Palestinians what they think of themselves, they consider themselves a people, also inhabit the land. That fact does not in any way diminish our right to this land. Understand what I'm about to say. The Jews have an inalienable right an irrevocable right to settle in what they regard as their ancestral biblical homeland and anywhere in it. 
anywhere in it, because if you can't settle in Hebron, you can't settle in Tel Aviv, and if you can't settle in Bethel, you can't settle in Haifa. This is the land of Israel. But we recognize that we must resist the urge to realize our right. We have to circumcise our right. Circumscribe our right to accord for the rights of another. Circumcise another one, too. All right. I can't tell you how many times I make that Paging Dr. Freud. And I say Uh. to myself... (laughs) I say to myself, don't use that word. You (laughs) always get that word wrong. But it's incredibly appropriate, nevertheless. It really is. It really works. They do it, too. They do it, too. Everybody. They do it, too. It's one of the many things we share with our cousins. (laughs) Pain. Pain. Um, The early infliction (laughs) of unnecessary. (laughs) We recognize that we can't actualize our right fully because of the it conflicts with the rights of another people, and so we have to find a way to make our rights accord with their rights. You said we recognize the 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 need to, but from my humble perspective, Israel has largely failed in the last forty-two years to recognize the limitations. I mean, I'll t- quote Avishai Margulit. Let's go to the opposite end of the right. spectrum and quote Jabotinsky. Jabotinsky's argument for, for, for a Jewish state, he didn't believe that the Arabs would like it. He didn't believe that Arabs would be happy with uh, the scientific improvements the Jews are bringing. But he said that the, that the, the, the Jewish desire for, uh, for the land of Israel at that time in the 1920s and 30s uh, was, an, was a desire born of starvation. And the Arab, appetite, the Arab desire was one of appetite. And, and he said... Starvation beats out appetite. The Arabs have plenty of lands. Uh, they don't need this one. The Jews have nothing, so they need this one more. But after the Six-Day War, of which you're one of the world's leading experts, um, a large portion of Israel decided that it needed all of the West Bank, all of biblical Judea and Samaria. Um, that, to, to, to my mind, uh, was not a need driven by starvation, but a need driven by appetite. And I'm wondering how you can say that, that Israel has largely resisted the urge to, to inhabit all of the land of Israel when you see the settlements uh, spread across the West Bank uh, and, and see them as one of the main sticking points uh, in Middle East peace negotiations. It seems as if mm-hmm. Israel so far resisted the, uh, the urge for restraint. Now, which one of those questions do you want me to answer? I, I, was there even a question? <laughs> Did I get my choice? No, 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 no I don't question? even know if there was a question there. Um, no, but, whether but, you have a humble opinion? Yeah, I have a... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, first of all, I would take issue with the opening remark that the, the Jews had... Uh, what was it? The appetite? The Jews had the appetite after 67. Right. All right. No, they had the appetite well before 67 too, but they didn't have only appetite. They had inspiration. Okay. Jews were coming back to this state, back to their whole ancestral land that they desi- that, to which they were connected physically or spiritually over the course of more than 3,000 years out of more than just appetite. It was out of belief. It was inherent to their belief system. It was inherent to the notion of a Jewish people, the connection to the land. And that's why they're coming back. That's why I left New Jersey, not because I needed, you know, I I was hungry to grab land. I could have grabbed land opposite the country club. Um, I didn't. I came there because this was an essential component of my identity to be on this land. And many, many people followed suit. It was the same thing for you. You didn't need land when you moved to Israel. You did it because it was part of your, your, your identity. So, but, and, and it's, and it's true that we did not always resist the urge to infringe to ignore the rights of the other people that also claim this land. That is absolutely true. Though I would you know, keep it in the context that though uh, Jews settlers today account for about 17% of the population on the West Bank, they take up only 1.7% of the land. But beyond that, it is not as if the Jews hadn't tried. Keep in mind, the British in 1938 present their first partition plan. The Zionists debate it. They don't reject it. The Palestinian Arabs reject it and go to war against it. November 1947, the UN creates its first two-state solution. A very small Jewish state alongside a small Arab state. The Jews debate it. They accept it. The Arabs reject it and go to war against it. 1979, the conclusion of the Camp David Accords, negotiated by Jimmy Carter with Egypt and Anwar Sadat and and, uh, Menachem Begin provided for the creation of a Palestinian state within five years. Israel 
affirmed those accords. The Palestinians rejected it and basically went to war against it. 2000, another Camp David summit, this time with Bill Clinton, Yasser Arafat, Ehud Barak. According to the American and Israeli versions of those events, Palestinians were offered a state on the West Bank and Gaza, half of Jerusalem, compensation for any land taken up by the settlements. The Israelis probably would have accepted it if it had gone to a plebiscite, and the Palestinians rejected it and went to war against it. So the, the record shows that while, yes, we haven't always been most sensitive in recognizing and acknowledging the rights of this other people, and I would admit that, it's not as if there haven't been very serious attempts by Jews to try to coexist with these two rights. Do you think if settlements were frozen right now that the Arabs would reach out to Israel for peace talks? Very difficult. Very difficult. They maybe reach out to peace talks. I don't know where those peace talks would, 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 would run, but I'll tell you, several weeks ago, uh, the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, issued, gave a speech. And in the speech, he recognized the need for an independent Palestinian state. He wanted the state to be demilitarized because we've had some nasty experiences with Palestinian entities that shoot at us. And he, had, he also had another demand. It wasn't a precondition, but it was a demand that at some stage before the final treaty is signed, that that Palestinian state is going to have to recognize Israel as the Jewish state, as the nation state of the Jewish people. And many people in the Arab world, many people in Europe, were sort of scratching their heads and saying, why do you need this? Isn't this just an obstacle to peace? Um, A.B. Yoshua is a, is a very good friend of mine. He called me up on the phone screaming, why is he doing this? It's just another obstacle. He's, your prime minister doesn't want peace. And I explained to A.B. Yoshua, I said, I said, bully, I said, what you see as an obstacle, I see as a door. And this is, an idea, this is a notion that I've held for many, many years, well over 15 years, that without recognition of the legitimate existence of a Palestinian people with an historic connection to the land and a right to an independent state in that land, without the reciprocal recognition of a Jewish people with an historic tie to a land and a legitimate claim to a state, there will never be an end to the conflict. That is only on the basis of that reciprocity can we actually end the conflict, because if you don't have that, if you only have the Jewish state recognizing the Palestinian state, you have a Palestinian state that will always regard the Jewish state as illegitimate, foreign, and temporary. And there, to me, that lies the essence. So Israel can freeze settlements tomorrow. We plucked up 21 settlements out of Gaza a couple of years ago, and you know I was there. It was the most traumatic event of my military career was pulling Jews out of their houses. We did that, and in return for it, we got 7,200 rockets fired at us. Settlements are not the issue. The issue is the recognition of the mutual legitimacy of these two peoples, this legitimate claim to this, these two states. There's so many ways to go with this, but let me go with a very specific point. You say settlements are not the issue. The Obama administration believes that settlements are a clear issue. Uh, in, in a way that very few administrations have, uh, they have made this the early centerpiece of their, of their move, their desire mm. to re reignite peace talks. Do you think that they are making a mistake? I, don't I, don't I never said that settlements aren't an issue. And I think, I, I can't speak for the Obama administration, but I think that they understand as well that the settlements are not, not the issue that it's one of many issues. Another issue is the degree to which the Arab states are willing to embark on a process of normalization with us, and that process is, is, is right now moribund. Um, I think that they're both sides, the Israeli side, the American side, are working earnestly, ardently to try to find a compromise over the question of the degree to which uh, construction can continue in the settlements to accord for what we call normal life. And I think that I'm, I'm fairly confident that in the uh, coming period, we will find a solution for this. Do you believe, you've been studying this for 30 years, do you actually believe that, that there is a moment in time in the near future when the Palestinians will recognize Israel as a legitimate Jewish state? I think there is a, a time in the future, but that, is, that, that moment is the, is the culmination of a process. It's a process that begins with the schools. It begins with changing textbooks, which denies Israel's legitimacy and, 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 and right to exist. I watched... Uh, public service announcements by the, by the Palestinian Authority, paid for, by the way, with American taxpayers' dollars. And the public service announcement said, you know, welcome to PA Television. We are going to liberate not only Tulkarm and Janiyam, but we're going to liberate Haifa and Jaffa and Tiberias. Now, that is not the way to go. That does not lead 
to mutual recognition of two, the right of two peoples to their independent states. And that process has to start now. And we have, we have recognized our obligations under previous agreements. One of those agreements talks for a sequential process in which Israel will find a solution for the settlement issue, but the Palestinians have to begin to end what we call hatred on their television sets and in their textbooks. Without that, you are raising generations to regard Israel as an alien, hostile, temporal state. And that's, um, that is not a prescription piece. Michael Oren, Israel's ambassador to the United States, in conversation at this summer's Aspen Ideas Festival with his friend Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic Magazine. This is Ideas from Aspen. From American Public Media, I'm Kai Rizdahl. Every summer, the Aspen Institute and the Atlantic Magazine put on the Aspen Ideas Festival. It's a week-long series of conversations and panel discussions among some of the nation's most provocative thinkers, scientists, artists, and policymakers. We're featuring some of the highlights from this festival. Up next, a conversation with the Syrian ambassador to the United States, Imad Mustafa. Syria's relationship with the United States has been changing. This June, President Obama announced he was sending an ambassador back to Syria after a four-year hiatus. President Bush recalled the previous ambassador in 2005 after the assassination of former Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri of Lebanon. The Bush administration suspected Syria was connected to that attack. Syria has denied any involvement. Bush also accused Syria of supporting insurgents in Iraq. He imposed sanctions on the country, and he included Syria in the axis of evil, along with Iran, Iraq, and North Korea. At this summer's Aspen Ideas Festival, Syrian Ambassador Imad Mustafa talked with moderator James Bennett, editor of The Atlantic magazine. Mr. Ambassador, I'd like to start just by getting a sense for how has this change of administrations affected your own life and uh, your ability to do your job in Washington? Well, uh, dramatically, but since you're asking about my personal life, let me tell you this funny story. When my government decided to... Uh, uh, send me uh, to become the ambassador of Syria to the United States. I was totally flabbergasted because, as you have just mentioned, I have spent all my life in academia before coming here. So I went to a friend of mine who was a a former ambassador, a retired ambassador, and I asked him about what sort of a life should I expect once I become an ambassador. He looked at me with, with great wisdom and he said to me, Imad, you need really to understand the difference between an ambassador and a camel. I told him, what do you mean? And he said, well, as you know, a camel can work for days, days, and days without having any food. An ambassador will eat for days, days, and days without doing any work. (laughs) And I thought that was fun. Why not? For a poverty-stricken academic from the University of Damascus to come spend my time attending banquets, uh, balls, uh, parties, why not? Why not? (laughs) And I came here. I actually arrived immediately prior to the war on Iraq. Uh, uh, relations between the United States of America and Syria uh, deteriorated dramatically. It's become an uphill battle, a daily uphill battle for me here. When the United States decided to uh, withdraw its ambassador from Syria, um, there was this big question in Damascus, should we or shouldn't we reciprocate? Certain individuals in the Syrian government said, thought that we should reciprocate. Um, The president thought that an ambassador of a country would serve the interests of his or her country wherever he or she is posting. And he thought that a presence of a Syrian ambassador in the United States will serve the interests of Syria, regardless of whether the United States wants or does not want to have an ambassador in Syria. We did not kick 
out the ambassador, the American ambassador from Damascus. It was a purely Bush administration decision. It was not only about actually withdrawing the ambassador. For the past four years, there was no dialogue whatsoever on any level between Syria and the United States. And suddenly, you guys go and elect a new president. You have a new administration. Uh, as early as the first month of this new administration, officials from the State Department invite me to engage in, in very serious respectful political and diplomatic talks that have uh, made a major paradigm shift and has changed my life considerably since I first came here uh, to the United States of America. More meals at last? Uh, no, I still don't eat a lot. I still have to work a lot. Well, the administration decided that it has not taken action to remove the sanctions that the Bush administration put in place on Syria, but it has now decided to send an ambassador back to Damascus. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your own role in making that happen and whether there was some sort of deal struck, whether there was some sort of a commitment from the Syrian <coughs> government in exchange for the return of, of our representative. Um, look, at the very first meeting I ever had with a high-ranking official from this administration, um, he told me the following. That's what he told me. He said, President Obama has instructed us to engage Syria in very serious uh, 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 discussions, and this is what we plan to do. And he told us that however serious the issues are between the United States of America and Syria, we have to be respectful. And based on this, you will never hear us go publicly to TV screens or making interviews in which we lambast Syria, as you used to, to, to hear during the Bush administration. When we will have issues with you, we will sit with you and we will tell you to the face these are the problems we are having with you and we want to address these issues but we will never go public to the same of rhetoric you used to hear from us during the Bush administration and that was the start of a new relationship however as you have just alluded to unfortunately a month later President Obama decided to extend the sanctions imposed on Syria uh, which were actually put forward by the Bush administration uh, of course we were shocked in Syria because he decided to do this. And our message was a very simple message. Uh, uh, despite the fact that we in Syria, we strongly desired to engage with the United States, but it takes two to tango. And we told the US, the new administration, we have survived eight years of the Bush administration. We believe we can survive an additional four or eight years of the Obama administration. If this is the way you want to, to, to deal with us, well, we're not going to deal with you. And of course, they were shocked. They said, you shouldn't look at something as simple as extending the sanctions. Here we are sitting with you, telling you we want to seriously work with you. We have issues that we believe you can be very helpful on Iraq, on the peace process. Don't make a big fuss of a little issue like extending the sanctions. But of course, you know, uh, 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 sometimes you need to understand the other, to empathize with the other. Uh, we do not claim monopoly on truth or wisdom. We understand that the United States of America have issues and concerns towards us. We, with great modesty also, have issues and concerns towards your foreign policy in our region, in my region. But at least we are telling you in the most explicit, clear way that we believe that it serves our national interest to improve relations with the United States of America. This is what we desire. This is where we want to move. And for you, by publicly extending these sanctions, you are undermining the, this whole burgeoning relationship. I don't want to bore you with details. Immediately after this has happened, uh, 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 a new round of discussions and talks took place, and it has been agreed that this will belong to the past. From now on, we will move forward. We have actually started moving forward. It's not only sending the ambassador to Damascus. It's not only what uh, former Senator Mitchell has said and has agreed to when he was in Damascus. Uh, it's not only the high-ranking visits of Dan Shapiro and Jeffrey Feltman, uh, three visits up till now and uh, a fourth one very soon, but it's also uh, the, the CENTCOM delegation that went to Syria to start actual cooperation on Iraq. And it's such a different sort of a relationship that we are having right now with this new administration. How would you describe the chief objectives of each side in this relationship? I mean, the Americans utterly focused on securing the Syrian border with Iraq. Is that their top objective? What is your own 
um, wish list from this administration? Well, we have a very long wish list, but we are realists. We don't, we don't believe that uh, things can be achieved uh, within a very short period of time. We are pragmatists. We are realists. Even with the Bush administration, throughout the past six years, time and again, my government would instruct me, and I have done this many times, to knock on their doors and to tell them Syria is not an enemy, despite all the public rhetoric. We want to work with you. Uh, but I, I don't want to waste your time right now telling you about what happened in the past. Now we have common objectives and goals vis-à-vis -vis Iraq and vis-à-vis -vis the peace process. Let me start with Iraq. Here we have the U.S. president saying that the United States of America is planning to withdraw its troops from Iraq. It is our own national interest to see that all U.S. troops leave Iraq in a peaceful uh, 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 organized way. We want Iraq to be uh, uh, stable, prosperous, and safe, secure after you leave. And it is a paramount national interest for Syria that Iraq uh, 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 preserves its territorial integrity. And of course, it's a, a nightmare scenario for us in Syria. This is a purely Syrian interest. If Iraq spirals down, God forbids, to uh, uh, sectarian and factional war. So if you look at it and if you compartmentalize, if you isolate all other factors, you see that despite all the rhetoric and the ideology of the Bush administration, Syria and the United States do have a common objective towards Iraq. You want to withdraw successfully from Iraq. You want to leave behind you a successful Iraq. This will serve our own national interest. This is how two countries can go beyond, transcend their ideological differences and actually find ways in which both countries can have a, a common interest. You didn't use the word, the adjective democratic in your list of um, objectives for the state of Iraq after American withdrawal. Is that a priority for Syria? Would you like well, to see... Well, there is a major difference between Syria and the United States. We are not in the business of telling the Iraqis what they should do or what they shouldn't do. We are in the business of telling the Iraqis that we are committed to to their security, to their safety. We want the best possible relations with Iraq. We already have excellent relations with Iraq right now, and we really want to develop these relations. You in the United States of America, you have a very different strategic global outreach. You are in the business of, of telling other nations what sh they should do and what they shouldn't do. With great respect, I'm not being critical. By the way, by merely inviting the ambassador of Syria to Aspen, um, I recognize I recognize that this is a very bold uh, step, and of course you, you you will realize that I will be the contrarian here, but at least i 'm not here to to claim to you that I know better i 'm just here to ask you to to try to empathize with the other viewpoint, even if you reject it, try to understand it. Let me ask you about another recent election outcome though the election in Iran, and again i 'm not asking you to interfere in Iranian affairs. I'm curious about your analysis of the outcome. It's, it's um, very, very hard for us to evaluate from here. Do you believe that Mahmoud Ahmadinejad did win with more than 62% of the vote? It's extraordinary. I think you guys, you yourself can be one of them. If you remember, just before the elections were held in Iran, all political analysis, not only here in the United States of America, but across the whole world, in the French media, in the British media, in our own region, everybody uh, agreed there was this consensus that Ahmadinejad will re-win the elections. I'm not interfering. I'm describing what you guys used to write in your editorials and political analysis prior to the elections. Now, the elections happened. The big surprise was not that Ahmadinejad won the elections. The big surprise to everybody was the upheaval that uh, happened in Iran. Once again, we do not interfere in other countries' uh, external affairs. And what I want to say is the following. I happen to know personally that the United States of America has already made up her mind. The United States of America realizes that it cannot sustain its policy of no talk and no engagement to Iran. And what I happen to know for sure is that the United States of America was waiting till after the Iranian elections to start a very serious political dialogue with Iran. Now, let us be wise and realistic about this. What are the options? Either that the United States of America launch a war on Iran, thus uh, 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 starting yet another conflict 
in addition to the Afghani and the Iraqi conflicts, or engage Iran in very serious talks leading to, to a sort of a, a modus vivendi between the United States and Iran. We in Syria believe that we can play such a role, and we have to, uh, I mean, play a role in mediating or to, in opening channels between the United States and Iran, and Iran. And we have already told the United States that the moment you decide that it's high time for you to start talking with the Iranians, we can play a role. Just a small role, just to get things started. We believe that eventually you guys will have to sit with the Iranians and sort out your issues with them. What is the alternative? Yet another war that will destroy our region, but will also be very detriment to, to the United States, to Iran, to the world economy. Uh, we cannot envisage a third scenario. Either you sit with the Iranians and you discuss all issues, or you end up with yet another major conflict. We do want to understand how the world looks from Damascus. Um, and we're very grateful to have you here to, to express that. I'm but grateful I, as well. <laughs> but I, I would like to ask the question again. From Damascus, what happened in Iran? Did it look understandable? Was it something that was um, <laughs> approval is the wrong word, but did you, did you feel like you could understand why it was necessary for the Iranian regime to take these measures? Um, or do you think it was look, the wrong I don't thing think to do? this discussion is going to lead us to anywhere. What I believe, I still believe in, is the following. The United States of America can be critical of any country in the whole world. The countries can be. We are very critical of your policies towards us, but we still believe that we need relations with America. We still believe that peace in our region cannot be achieved without an, an active uh, role played by your country in our region. Uh, 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 um, I am personally, because of my ground, I'm a great admirer of the United States of America. And since I came here, I was surrounded by friendship and warmth. This is a great nation. Yet, I can be very critical of your policies. But this is, this is not the, this is unimportant. The important thing is, should we try to find solutions to the issues between us and the other side? It's not about me giving you... Uh, my judgment on what you are doing or what another country, regardless of whether it's Iran, it's China, it's Russia, it's Israel, is doing. We, I belong to a country that a part of my country right now is under the Israeli occupation. Right now in my country, half a million Syrians live in Syria, dreaming of the day they can go back to their towns, their homes, their villages that are under Israeli occupation. This is my concern. It's not what is happening far away in another region. Well, let's then talk about that. There were, there were talks underway in Turkey between the Israelis and the Syrians, and they were broken off. Syria broke them off during the fighting in Gaza. If I'm, if That's I'm, your I, version. Okay, please, <laughs> please correct it. In the spirit of constructive criticism. Of course. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what happened. Promise me not to uh, disclose this publicly. <laughs> Otherwise, I will be kicked out of my job. Um, um, this was not the first time. This was the first time, fourth time we sit with the Israelis. We start discussing terms for a peace agreement between Syria and Israel. And surprise, surprise, and within a very short period of time, uh, uh, we, we almost reach a peace agreement between Syria and Israel. Now you will be shocked by, why I, by what I tell you. The reason Syria and Israel cannot sign a peace agreement are not the issues. Every time we sit with the Israelis and we negotiate the issues, every time hmm, the issues are not that contentious and not that difficult to address. Be careful. We still believe in Syria firmly that the core of the Arab-Israeli conflict is the Palestinian issue. As long as the Palestinians are deprived of their human dignity and allowed to have their independent sovereign state, peace will not prevail in the Middle East. The Israelis will not have their children living in peace with our grandchildren. This is what we firmly believe in in Syria. Having said this, if Israel wants to negotiate a peace agreement with us, give us back our occupied Golan, we are willing to sign a peace agreement with Israel. And I hope you, 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 the distinction between the two issues is very clear in your minds. So in the past, we did sit with the Israelis three times, and the fourth time happened in Turkey. Every time, we will reach the very last point in which Israel will commit herself to withdraw from the Syrian Golan, and then everything will collapse. Now we have, now we have a witness, the Turks. We, dis we demanded that Israel put in writing, put in writing its commitment, hmm, its commitment to withdraw 
from the Syrian occupied Golan. And the Israelis demanded in return, in return that we put, the Syrians put in writing our commitments toward how, the things, how things should be between, I'm sorry, I cannot disclose the nature of the Israeli demands, how things should proceed on their northern borders. We delivered, and we put this document as a deposit with Prime Minister Erdogan. Uh, the Israeli Prime Minister at the time, Ehud Olmert, called Erdogan, and he said to him, I'm coming to Ankara, and I have what the Syrians want in my hand, provided they have given you the answers to our requests. He arrived there, and he explained to Erdogan that because of the domestic political situation in Israel, he is incapable of delivering. Uh, peace makes, needs two parties. You cannot make peace while the other side is reluctant. You need to understand. I'm not here to criticize Israel. You probably understand the domestic political situation in Israel more than I do. The Israeli political domain lacks both cohesiveness and cohesion. If one party in Israel says to you, I want to make peace with you, the other party will jump immediately and say, this is a, a, a betrayal to Israel. We don't want to make peace with the Syrians. If that same other party decides, change their mind and decide to, to negotiate with the Syrians a peace agreement, the first party will suddenly go and oppose it. This is the situation as it is from our perception. Regardless of you agree with us or not, at least here the Syrian official perception. Right now in Syria, we do not believe that there is a constituency for peace in Israel. Why? Probably we are absolutely wrong about this, but we look at a cabinet in which Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is this considered in Israel itself. I, I read Haaretz every day, the second most moderate individual in his whole cabinet. This is the situation today. So does that mean that Syria is prepared to return to the table and, be, and resume negotiations where they left off? Well, they left off at the point in which Israel will say, yes, we are willing to give you back the, the Syrian Golan. If this is what you mean, the moment they will say this, everything else, everything else is accepted. Don't forget that Syria is an... an is party of the Pan-Arab Peace Initiative, in which every single Arab state, without a single exception, offered Israel com comprehensive peace and absolute normalization and relations in return for the occupied Arab territories and ending this ignominious occupation of the Palestinian territories. Allow the Palestinians to be treated just like every other nation in the world, to have their dignity and to have their independent, sovereign, viable state. All Arab countries, including my country. Again, with the goal of understanding how you view these regional issues, we, we, the, the Israeli ambassador, Michael Oren, was here this week. And one thing one often hears from Israelis, and we heard a version of from him this week, is that the fundamental problem is that the neighbors of Israel, with which Israel does not have peace agreements, simply do not, cannot, will not recognize that Israel has a legitimate right to exist. What's he is your view? talking on our behalf. That they are talking on your behalf. So, so that's why I'm is, asking okay, you. Okay, thank you. Well, directly. First, I would suggest that the ambassador of Israel talks on behalf of Israel. I have just said all Arab countries, without a single exception, including my own country, have come together, put their act together, and offered Israel a comprehensive peace, total acceptance. If they want to talk on our behalf, it's, I cannot stop them. Do you think it does have a right to exist, though? By merely offering Israel this initiative, I leave the rest for your imagination. I don't think it Fair needs enough. a lot of imagination to say, we are all offering Israel recognition and normalization and relations. What, what, what better can we offer? Can there be a Syrian deal without a deal between the Israelis and the Palestinians? Are these separate tracks, or does it all have to get done at once? Yes, but I need to qualify this by two things. First, originally, originally Syria never believed in separate peace, tra peace uh, tracks. We always thought that this is an Arab-Israeli conflict. We always believed that Arabs should sit with the Israelis and address this conflict. However, as I told you, uh, probably we were, uh, we, we were on the idealistic side. Egypt decided to have its 
separate peace deal with the, with the Israelis. I'm not being critical. I'm just describing what happened. And then Jordan decided to do the same, or maybe uh, the Palestinians in Oslo decided also to do the same. And of course, because we are not Don Quixote, we decided that if every Arab country wants to have its own track, let us have our own track. So what we are telling the Israelis now is, on one hand, if you want to have a separate Syrian-Israeli peace agreement, we are willing to do this. On the other hand, you need to understand that peace will not prevail in our region as long as the core issue of this conflict continues uh, uh, unresolved, which is the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. This is, a, this is one side of the story. The extraordinary thing was the following. Here comes a new president of the United States of America. Uh, he appoints a, a special envoy to the Middle East, and he is everything that the previous envoy, Dennis Rose, was not. This guy comes, he sits with us, and he, he says to us as clearly as possible, we are absolutely committed to making peace. It's not another peace process. I'm underlining the word process. It's peace that we are actually committed to achieve, and it's going to be a comprehensive peace on all tracks. Music to our ears. Suddenly, we are not the stupid Syrians anymore. Suddenly, here is the envoy of the United States of America telling us it's going to be a comprehensive peace on all tracks. Peace between Israel and the Palestinians, peace between Israel and the Syrians, peace between Israel and the Lebanese, but most importantly, peace between Israel and the Arab world. Wow, this is music to our ears. Imad Mustafa is Syria's ambassador to the United States. He spoke with the editor of The Atlantic magazine, James Bennett, at this year's Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. We also heard this hour from Israel's ambassador to the United States, Michael Oren. Oren talked with Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic magazine. If you missed any part of this program, or if you'd just like to hear it again, you can download the podcast. Go to the iTunes podcast section and search for Ideas from Aspen. American Public Media's Ideas from Aspen is produced by Larissa Anderson with help from Julie Seipel and Emily Bina. Technical direction from Rob Byers, Kyle Sisko, Zach Rose, Sam Keenan, and Michael Osborne. Oversight from Peter Clowney. I'm Kai Rizdal. American Public Media.